listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monolith University. I'm Hedy B. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Guthrie Ramsey, Professor Emeritus of Music from the University of Pennsylvania, and author of several books. Uh, including his most recent book, Who Hears Here, on Black music, past and present. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ramsey. Thank you very much. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation. And I have to say, you're the second Hetty that I've ever met. My mother-in-law, my mother-in-law's name is Hetty, so it's a real pleasure. Oh, nice. That's that's great. It's a I actually see a lot of Hetty's around, but <laughs> my grandmother was named Hetty. So it's, I guess it's a name that was common back in the day. <laughs> so today on our show, we're going to discuss the professor's latest book and um, black music for obvious reasons, more reasons obvious than not black music, history and culture. You know, particularly black music has been in the news of late the last couple of days uh, with the latest controversy with Kanye West. So we'll get into that if we can, if we have time. Oh, we can start with that if you like. (laughs) I know. I said, oh, should I ask the professor about this? This is no better person to discuss. And um, I I definitely want to get jump right in. But first, let's let's hear a little bit about your background and all your many books and accomplishments. I'm so impressed with you and your work, and I'm glad to have you today. Tell us a little bit about your teaching research background. Well, thank you very much for having me. I am what you call an Americanist uh, musicologist. That is, I specialize in the music of the United States and in the many courses I've taught through the years. I cover uh, topics from the colonial era to the present. My particular research uh, focus, however, has been on the music of African-Americans, film music, uh, popular music, and and so on. So uh, the books I have written, Race Music, uh, The Amazing Bud Powell, and my latest Who Hears Here, I cover... Uh, many uh, topics. I come at, at these topics from uh, various uh, social, cultural, musical, analytical uh, uh, positions and try to give my readers and uh, the legions of students I've taught through my uh, throughout my career a, a way into uh, this question that was posed by the uh, late British musicologist, Christopher Small. Why are these people making this music at this time in this place? Yeah, I I like the title because oftentimes anyone, you know, we can listen to music, but who's really hearing what's happening in the music and its overall historical and cultural implications. Ab- you know, who's, mm. who's listening? Yeah, absolutely. And the uh, what has really driven my research and uh, the 
questions I pose to students uh, throughout the years has been trying to get uh, my readership and uh, my my listeners to understand how meaning is generated in musical practice. You know, it's very uh, difficult to get people to pay money for objects, to pay money to sit in a theater or a concert venue or a nightclub to do nothing. But what I try to get people to see is that when they are doing those things in pursuit of the musical experience, it's because that musical experience is a powerful cultural transaction that bonds not only the audience members, but it also bonds us to uh, the music maker in very unique ways. And what I've tried to do throughout my career is to have uh, people understand why that cultural transaction is so powerful, why people seek it out, and how it works on the ground. Wow, that's that's very, um, very interesting. But you also are more, you know, as you said in your, your opening, you're a historian, but you're also a musicologist and cultural critic, music critic, and as well, you play music. Tell us a little bit about that journey you know, what led you to play music? Some of my earliest and most powerful recollections are from my childhood, and they involve music. I can remember walking into the uh, Baptist church that my family of origin belonged to on the south side of Chicago and hearing the pianist play these powerful passages and hearing the, the, the wonderful singing coming through. And what it really got me is the kind of electrified atmosphere all of that created. And it riveted me. I remember not being able to take my eyes off that piano player. And I don't know whether I expressed interest in it or not, but the next thing I knew, I was in my uh, next door neighbor's home uh, where Mrs. Jones had a piano and she played. And I was, you know, taking piano lessons very, very early. And one of the motivating factors was that she would put a piece of pie with a piece of cheese (laughs) in a saucer (laughs) on top of the piano. And if I kind of maintained my my attention throughout the lesson, I could uh, have at it. Wow, that's a great story. So how old were you about when you started to really get into playing the piano? Well, I'm not sure what happened with those very early lessons, but I say I got serious about music at about age 11 when I was, uh, you know, seeking out uh, my own teachers and trying to arrange things, you know, with uh, between my parents and different music, you know, teachers and things like that. So I was hot on the trail of this thing. Mm-hmm. That's great. And you found you sought out mentors. It, it sounds like you're saying, you know, you looked at people who were, were involved in either playing the piano and in music and sought, you know, these mentors around you out. And um, who were some of your early, you know, your early influences or artists may, perhaps that you really loved growing up or even now to the present? Well, of course, I listened to what my family was listening to, and 
what I remember about that experience is that there was a, a large swath of music played in terms of uh, the genre selection. So we heard uh, gospel music at church. We heard jazz in the home. And of course, I came up in the era of the uh, Motown hits. Those are some of my earliest memories. And so what was popular among the R&B, soul, and, you know, even rock, because my older sister, I mean, we were an African-American family, but my older sister, who was eight years older than I was, had this wide musical taste. And so we heard rock and roll from her. Uh, Yeah. So I remember listening to the Beatles coming up and everything. I just, uh, just loved it all. That's great. And that, and that is is great, you know, getting into teaching and being able to teach across so many different genres of music. I'm sure that was uh, just having an interest in different types of music. certainly probably aided you in your uh, work as a teacher and professor. Indeed. And the the other thing that's important is that when I became a player and started to really pursue um, uh, the performing aspect of things, you know, as I say, I started at 11 and then in high school, I, you know, took lessons and, and, uh, uh, you know, things really picked up for me. what I recognize now is that looking back, I was just into everything, whether it was the uh, magical singers, you know, that, you know, singing Renaissance, uh, you know, era music of the, uh, of the European, Western European uh, tradition or playing in a rock and roll band in the garage or playing uh, Isley brother covers in the in the living room with people it was just a a constant pursuit of uh of music there's something you mentioned too you know that speaks to the title of your book as we turn to your book more directly about the way we listen to music and whether or not we're really hearing you know uh the intent of the artist I want to know a little bit about how that has changed only because I could walk in the classroom and mention the song and my state, my students will look at me like I have, you know, two heads because they're, they, they listen to music very differently. You know, we grew up on radio, listen to top 40 radio, for instance, they're not doing that. They have a style of music they listen to and it's in a, a much more, I think, individualistic way as opposed to turning on the radio and being influenced by all these different genres? Well, it's interesting that you use the word influence uh, because it, you're, you're right. There are, uh, uh, there are different patterns to acquiring uh, music uh, these days. And what I found, you know, particularly during my teaching years, that I had to keep up with how students were getting their music and what they were listening to. That was what I thought of as my superpower, this uh, mm-hmm. voracious kind of appetite for everything and also being very curious about the listening habits of others. And I would try to use that uh, knowledge and interest to generate, you know, excitement in the classroom. And, you know, I would keep up with what was uh, new and popular and uh, try to link it into historical issues that I wanted to discuss with my students. 
Uh, I mean, there are what what I found, you know, basically is that there are many more uh, platforms through which people can acquire music. Uh, so you're right; it's not just the tra- terrestrial, uh, you know, bound uh, radio station that's providing you know ways to to hear music. People are uh, constantly curating their own playlist. And consequently, what I found is that students today, uh, or when I left teaching, you know, college teaching a year ago, uh, there was a, a kind of healthy eclecticism uh, among, uh, among people. There was a lots of cross kind of generational cross uh, geographical, cross-racial, cross—you know—sexual uh, orientation, listening habits, because people have access and easier access to all of this stuff. So it, I actually right. feel that it's 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 it can be healthy, not always for the artist, because some of this is being experienced for free mm-hmm. or for minimal True. cost. But the, the access is unparalleled. Yeah, that's a great point where you can listen to pretty much anything at your fingertips. You know, perhaps something that you may never have thought of listening to years ago when we were, you know, in school. Um, but let's turn to your book. Give us a, a brief overview of your book. You know, maybe talk a little bit about uh, its structure and organization, but obviously also the main subject and premise uh, of your of your book. Well, I'm very excited about this book titled Who Hears Here on Black Music's Past and Present because it is a collection of my best of essays written throughout my career from my early years as a junior professor trying to find his way and develop a voice as a music scholar and critic all the way up to... Uh, 2019, I think, is the last uh, essay uh, that I, you know, to date. And, uh, you know, I just went through some of my previous writings and tried to decide what would fit together in this book. And I think I've come up with a, a an, an amazing array of uh, different topics and genres and, and ways of thinking about uh, uh, music, black music, uh, from the enslaved era to the present. So you get you can get it all if you're interested in 19th century music. I, I have some uh, essays about uh, black people making music in the 19th century, all the way up to hip hop. So it's uh, if whatever you like is in there. Um, I always tell my students, you know, I'm teaching the history of African Americans this semester to survey course. And I always tell, you know, when we cover the topic of African-American music, I tell them American music is black. American music, when you think of like the indigenous music forms, you know, jazz, country, Western, gospel, uh, those music styles are connected to the black experience. And um, somehow there seems to be Maybe because this is just a survey course in in, in African-American history. It's not a music history course. 
that they seem to have a disconnect. So in my last class, I told them, I said, yell out any music form, you know, and they were like pop, R&B. And I said, so all of these uh, genres have some connection to the African-American experience. So can you talk to us about the essays that you explore, you know, you, you explore a trajectory, right, from the 19th century to the present and how greatly implicated are African-Americans in this um, history of American music? Well, the thing about this topic is that people should understand that uh, while it was uh, possible to segregate physical bodies, it was impossible to segregate the airwaves. It was impossible to segregate people from hearing what other people were doing. In fact, what I would I would take any even a step further and argue that uh, not only has African American music uh, been so internalized into the uh, the American experience that you could call it African American, I would argue also that the reverse is also true. That it is impossible to think about an African American, what we typically think about as an African American form and think about it purely as that. A mm-hmm. lot of what I uh, uh, try to tease out in these essays is this kind of contiguous uh, next door neighbor kind of uh, aesthetic that has, uh, while on the one hand, uh, defined us as a kind of uh, a singular, a single culture. Mm-hmm. But when you start drilling down and, and finding out how individual musicians and communities of musicians have formed behind the, the walls of a strictly and brutally enforced wall of segregation, how people began to think about what they were making as distinct from the larger culture. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, looking at the origins of jazz, right? You've got you have all these, you know, like multi-ethnic influences uh, that couldn't exist without the other in a, to an extent. Uh, so that's I think an excellent um uh perspective to look at this. And, um, you know, at the same time, recognizing African-American influence as well. So over all the years in these these essays that you're writing um, and the different, you know, musicians that you've met, who was the most influential musician that you ever met? You know, I thought about that question. uh, And I would have to say... Uh, that the most influential musicians that I've personally met are, and and I'm taking your question to mean influential on me, I would say it was the musicians that I had access to. Hmm. And often we think about, you know, our musical heroes as being out there, over there, you know, if you're really into Beyonce, it's not necessarily because you've breathed the same oxygen as her, you know, 
<laughs> it's, it's because of what her music has always been uh, presented to you through a, a very powerful system of media, networking, and communications uh, institutions that make sure that you can make very strong identifications with her art practice. Now, as a musician myself, I can say that the most influential musicians that I've met have been ones who I've talked to, ones that have, you know, I'm standing over their shoulder uh, watching them play. As I can still remember, uh, you know, I, I did already tell you about walking into that uh, uh, church. I still remember the musician's name. His name was Aubrey. And I just remember him as being, it really opened my ears to the power of music, I have to say, the power of communal music, I should say, because of course there was music playing in the house. But when you get together with people and everybody's enjoying something, that's a very powerful experience. It shapes you, particularly if you're in your formative years. It's It shapes you to how and what it means to be part of a community through bonding socially, through uh, sound waves. I can still also remember uh, a musician, when I was in seventh grade, they put me, uh, they told me I was director of the youth choir in, in uh, you know, in, in my church. And the uh, musical director of the church had a uh, daughter who was my age at that time. And she was a really, really good musician. She could play, she could sing. And being that close up to somebody that I thought was, you know, so such a powerful uh, and impressive musician, that really changed me to think about the possibilities of becoming good as a young person. Then you can move on to my high school music teachers who uh, took special interest and made sure I had the opportunities that and some of them I could not otherwise afford. They would, you know, pay for private lessons and make sure you got into this special class and, and, and all of that. And it just kept going on and on, meeting people who invested in my musicianship. Those were the, the people who I think were the most influential on me. That's a great way to, to, to answer that question, I think. It's, it's often the people we met and the point you make about Beyonce. The marketing that goes behind, I mean, that's a marketing machine beyond, behind her. Um, even with the latest album with Renaissance, you know, there was in a, um, a hashtag, there was um, on Twitter, right, the image from the album cover. And so it's everywhere. You can't avoid it. So, of course, she's the greatest singer of all time. <laughs> because you, I mean, how are you yeah. going to compare it or say <laughs> well you know great point. well and she she does come to the table as a very 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 hard-working woman mm-hmm. and sure. uh we can uh, you know i personally uh can see her you know musical development her marketing development her conceptual development and you know she's just not sitting around resting on her laurels she is seems to me to be constantly taking in, you know, different forms of arts and cultures from around the planet 
and then indigenizing them into her own brand and uh, executing it uh, excellently. And then, as I said, she uh, particularly uh, with the uh, kind of digital and technical uh, technological divide that occurred when music began to circulate freely, she's been able to create and respond to that, but with her own culture industry that is around her, that keeps her in the avant-garde. So, uh, you know, hats off, hats off to her for figuring it out. That's true. Very hard, you know, hard work. There's always debate about her, her abilities as a singer. There's always this debate whenever she drops a new album, but whatever people think, I mean, at 40 years old, to still be in vogue, you know, with the younger artists that are out there and um, the work ethic that goes into that to try to remain relevant, relevant, you know, that's, that's not easy. She, she seems to be uh, aging into new and reinventing uh, new aspects of herself as she moves along. And I think that is a, uh, a very powerful artistic model. I think so too. She, her, and this, you know, Renaissance is historical, right? She's kind of paying homage to the, even the gospel music that came before her and kind of giving respect to all of those artists that, um, came before her or influenced her. Oh, absolutely. And and influenced the culture. You know, it's very mm-hmm. interesting that the uh the the new album uh Renaissance has all this house music on it, you know. And right. uh it it kind of tickles me because I came up, you know, I'm of the age where I remember that house music was the thing, you know, when I was a young person. So, uh to see it come back, to see these styles keep coming back and get keep getting re-energized, I decided to jump in it too. I'm about to drop a house track. Uh, Whoa, the, Professor, tell us about it. Wait, you got to tell us about it. Well, I, I there's this uh, a, a rapper, a Philadelphia-based rapper uh, named Chemist, and mm-hmm. I've had the opportunity to work with him uh, recently on a live show. It's, uh, you spell his name K-H-E-M-I-S-T, Chemist. And uh, he... Uh, is a person who told me that he read my Nas essay when he was 14 and it changed how he viewed himself as a rapper. And this guy is such an intelligent observer of culture. He's immensely talented. He's got flow. He's got fire. He's got insight. And so we collaborated on this song called Who Hears? And he's singing it in the first person as me. I mean, he's rapping it in the first person as me. And it is so powerful. I can't wait to drop this track. Oh, you got you have to make sure you let me know. I, sh- I want to hear it. I sure will. I want us to talk about the social contract and then talk about Mr. Kanye West or yay, whatever he's calling himself today. <laughs> what? Okay. So you talk about these musical artists manage social contracts with audiences. That piece, I want you to um, unpack a little bit and talk about what you mean. But my follow-up question will be, do you think uh, Kanye West has broken that contract? And even when we talk, you know, the contracts that he had with his, fr- his when he first came out, 
he's a different artist today. And I don't, you know, there's a big debate about what is he ever genius or whatever he, that phrase he uses. But he's not the artist he was, you know, when he debuted on the scene. And I'm wondering, is that what you mean by this, you know, social contract that artists have with their audience? So tell us a little bit about about that notion of this contract. Okay, what I mean about uh, social contracts in music is that when uh, musicians, uh, let's say they call themselves a songwriter and they start creating music, one of the first things that listeners do is try to place that sound organization into something that we call a category and the categories of music that we, we use are genres. And so we listen to the sound organization and whether we know we're doing it or not, we're trying to place it. We're trying to see where it relates to other songs and other styles that are out there. And then once we place it, there are some uh, expectations that we have of that artist that they will, you know, dress a certain way, that they will express themselves a certain way, that they will use certain chords or certain rhythmic, you know, uh, configurations that either fulfill the expectations of these audience members or kind of toys with it, you know, sometimes frustrating those uh, expectations, but usually stretching, you know, kind of stretching out at the, at the, envelope a little bit to make their personalized statement within uh, within the genre. So just for instance, just I'll give you a couple of examples. If we go to a uh, classical music concert uh, and there is something that happens on stage in the violin section that kind of moves you and you really like it, uh, in that time, at that place, in that social contract with that music, it's not appropriate to say hallelujah out loud. <laughs> okay? it's That's not what mm-hmm. the contract says. However, if you are in a gospel concert and something happens that really, you know, hits you and you feel like it was a profound moment, it is perfectly appropriate and expected even to uh to raise your voice in response in fact if you don't do that the performer will think that they're somehow not living up to the social contract because they haven't elicited that response out of you so that's a kind of a gross and crass way to kind of talk about social contracts and genre you know, and the thing about them is that we don't read them in a piece of paper that's handed out at the <laughs> at the door right. of the concert. Sure, sure. You you're just kind of raised uh, through repetition and observation through your life to understand what contracts work in what settings, and then once you make strong identifications, you seek out the contracts that make you satisfied, that make you feel good, that make you know that make you. Uh, kind of have a personal reaction. But here's the thing. Even though you're feeling this thing personally, you always have to understand how you, you what you feel personally is 
constituted in these larger social and cultural networks through which you learn them. Sure. So, Good point. Yeah. So that's that's the that's the whole idea about social contracts. Now, one aspect of that uh, social contract, or it, maybe it's even the modality through which these contracts are uh, experienced, is this strong identification that people make with artists and with musicians, particularly. Um, here's where the the case of uh, of of Ye, let's call him by his preferred name, uh, becomes interesting because, as I've observed uh, recently, there are camps of people who, with his uh, you know latest uh, uh, controversy, there are people who are kind of sticking with him on some kind of principle that they believe he he is standing on, or there are people who feel like this is a bridge too far. You know, this is, he's, he's gone out of his way. And so that's just one part of the social contract. This idea that because this person makes great beats and because this person is a good lyricist with a flow that the industry has uh, recognized as significant and important and lucrative, you got to throw in lucrative. Sure. That because all that is true, that means that I can, A, listen to who this person tells me to vote for. That means I have to uh, dress like this person uh, is suggesting that I dress and so on and so forth. So part of what I'm noticing is that... uh, this kind of rupture between the idea of artistic invention, meaning what this man makes as a musician, and real life experience, what he may be experiencing in his own life apart from his artistic output, and how are we to respond to all of this. Now, growing up as a musician, it's easy for me to separate these things. It's easy for me to put them together as a, an analyst, but it's also easy for me to tear them apart as well. Mm. Because just, you know, I've been in bands with people that I don't, you know, maybe I didn't necessarily like them as a person, but they were killing that bass line. <laughs> <laughs> and that's particularly all I needed out of them. I didn't need to be best friends with them. I needed them to do the job so we can get through this recording in the studio for which I'm paying $100, $100 an hour to to record this this thing. Right. Yeah. So, you know, getting back to this as it relates to Yay, did so is he the same artist though? I mean, we we said, you know, he's a great lyricist and all of that, but is he that? Is he still that now? I mean, because I don't th- like his earlier music. I don't. I stopped listening to him years ago. So that you know, as an expert, right? You're the expert here. So I, I, I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Well, I, I don't think I ever called him a myself a great lyricist. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how I would 
called great, you know, and you know, here's 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 what it is with me as a, a musicologist and the sheer volume of things that I take in and how I look at them. I am able to talk about the mechanics of delivery. I am able to talk about him as a great rapper within the context of what he was trying to do. I looked at him as trying to be more of a pop artist who was a rapper than I saw him as trying to make deep philosophical statements with that earlier music, although it might have seemed deep to people who were his age. Mm -hmm. But if I'm 30 years older than him, that's a tough burden on me to think that that's deep because here's the deal. It wasn't written with me in mind. Mm -hmm. People are typically trying to reach their generation with their music. And what one hopes is that as one ages, that you don't remain stuck in, you, you don't want to be 45 and still thinking like an 18 year old with no other analysis of life and no other things to think about than, than that. So what I'm saying is that, first of all, who is a great rapper is always a relative question. It's always a question of, uh, well, the, the way I put it is there's no knowledge without the knower. There's no dream without the dreamer. There's no arbitrary universal idea about greatness that can be decontextualized and taken away out of its time and its moment. Some things don't become great until many, many, many years past. Same object, same musical object, but people revisit it and see, wow, this is really great. I'm thinking of the, the work of the, uh, the uh, composer Florence Price, black woman, first black woman to have her a symphony uh, played for major orchestra, by a major orchestra in the 1930s. A lot of her music languished for years and years and years without being heard. And then it was quote unquote discovered. And now major orchestras around the world, uh, she died in 1952. Now they've discovered her music and now they're playing it. And now it's being described as this, this great thing these many years later. Mm. So I, I think some of that can be applied to uh, any artist, any artist in any genre. Sure. Now, the question of whether he is the same artist, that is impossible because there's no such thing as there's a for me, there's no such thing as uh, ahead of her time, ahead of their time. You know what I mean? You're always right. of your moment. You're always of your time. Now, whether the world is ready for what it is that you have to, to say or do is another thing. Sure. Florence Price wasn't ahead of her time. It's just because of sexism and racism, she was ignored right. in her time, only to be picked up, you know, later. Now, you can keep, can keep pressing me on the, the ye question. I, <laughs> I, I really love the topic, actually, because this is one thing that I, uh, I've noticed about it since you asked me is that... Uh, all you have to do is have one person 
who struggles or with a mental illness anywhere in your personal and social circle to know that there's absolutely no way, unless you're in the room with that person, unless you observe them day to day, unless you have firsthand experience with them, that you should be able to give them any advice or any response or analyze it or talk about it. It's just preposterous to me. It's just the things Mm -hmm. we do with people who are in the mass media. Uh, Now, because his uh, machinations are so public, I guess we can't help but notice them. But I don't know. I think that that's probably for a doctor to, uh, you know, someone with training to to, to talk, talk about. Yeah, you know, I liked a good point that you made about the fact that he was, I think a lot of people may have misplaced him as being a, a conscious rapper, which he really never was. Mm-hmm. You know, like Kendrick Lamar is a conscious rapper. I don't know how long he's going to stay in that lane. And I think he might even be moving towards the pop lane as well. And whereas Kanye West, you know, as one of my um, colleagues recently said, he was always chasing that pop dollar. You know, he's but people have, I think, placed him in that at least the earlier um, iteration in that conscious rap lane where, which he really never was in and, and probably never wanted to be in, you know, he wants that pop dollar and that's a good point. I think that. Yeah. About him. Yeah. I guess, you know, and even this idea of what a pop lane looks like is a, a, a historically situated idea. And that's why I use that uh, quote from Christopher Small. Why are these people making this music in this time, in this place? Mm. Because you can make a, an artistic utterance in one in 1980 that might seem totally out of place 40 years later when it's right. experienced. It could be read totally different. And, sure. and then here's another problematic with the kind of dichotomy of saying there's, on the one hand, people chasing a pop dollar, and on the other hand, a conscious... Uh, a rapper, because there might be a moment, for instance, and in, after the killing of George Floyd, that someone who was speaking about uh, social issues um, head on can have a very lucrative career these days. Now, how long that is going to last is a, is another thing. But, you know, I mean, it, it keeps changing and moving. And that's why we that's why you and I keep studying these histories and talking about it and studying it because we want to keep up and and know what does it mean to be a socially conscious rapper in this moment or in another historical moment that we are are thinking about. Yeah, and it makes me think of the uh, artist uh, the baby when he I mean he was that song the song he made popular was Bop before that, after that, but after the George Floyd incident happened, he made a song that got him a Grammy, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, about you know police brutality. Right. And he nobody thought the baby was you know he's out there doing that pop thing. Right. But he made that song, and people said, "Wow!" And you know, performing on the. Award shows and listen and look at uh, Beyonce's career, right? Because uh, I guess 
all the single ladies can be uh, somewhat <laughs> of a <laughs> kind of a call to arms or whatever, a call to, you know, or put a ring on it. You know, it's a kind of a <laughs> song of resistance in a certain level. But <laughs> but uh, the 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 way that her her recent uh, uh, artistic projects have been uh, received by many many women has been you know powerfully powerful conscious you know effort and even uh even the stuff that's the the dance stuff people can read that as being you know uh powerful political statements however you want to frame that yeah i think she moves in that cultural feminism uh i think that i, I you know i hate to use the word brand but I, I think when she came on the stage as a solo artist, she committed to at least making, um, you know, these, and I think at one point described herself as a feminist. So these cultural feminist, you know, leanings in her, in her work. Mm-hmm. And that's her contract, right. With her audience. And, you know, if she were to say, I denounce feminism, you know, or something like that, the, the fans who follow her, her, her hive, right? What would happen to the hive, right? Yeah. Well, I, it would be it would be uh, 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 something to behold. I'll tell you that, and, and I will have I will have my pen and paper ready, uh, as I did for the last thirty years of my career, just uh, trying to get the pulse on all these historical actors in this book, and and uh, this is why I love talking about these contemporary. Um, situations, you know, like Ye and uh, Beyonce, because I try to bring that same lens to other historical moments and talk about them with as much interest and and trying to understand what social conditions were present when those people were making or writing about music. And it's really just kept me fascinated for all these years. Yeah, and I need, yeah, you know, so I think this book is important because it it's not necessarily to an academic audience. It it it's a book that anyone who loves music um, can read and take from it. You know, especially these conversations about contemporary artists and um, situating it in a historical context uh, while thinking about you know the evolution of music. It's, it just makes it such a, a, a book that kind of moves across disciplines. It's just, I think, it's outstanding, really. Uh, we talked a little bit about technology. I think we kind of raised that a little bit, but that was one question I want to get to. But also uh, music criticism, which you take up. And how has that changed, you know, in, in our, in terms of, like Renaissance wasn't necessarily well received by critics, I guess. You know, I think it's sort of some people say, oh, this is great. Others is like, ah, you know, not really original. So I'm wondering how, you know, music critics in the diversity, has it become more diverse? Uh, are they more, are there more diverse voices? Because I noticed that black music critics tended to like Renaissance, in terms of the little bit that I have read. Uh, so I'm wondering what you think about it. Does it need to be more diverse? Has it become 
you know, uh, more diverse in recent years? And, and why does that matter? Well, I happen to have been uh, hanging out a few, few weeks ago with two uh, Black Pulitzer Prize winning music critics, uh, Salamisha Tillett of the New York Times and Wesley Morris of the New York Times. Hmm. And these are two, uh, I mean, two people who have just, you know, won uh, Pulitzers, and which is, of course, a, a huge uh, recognition of their work. Um, and so in some ways, I think the uh, situation is getting better because people are opening up and allowing new voices into these major newspapers and magazines to write about about music. But uh, I like to think about this relationship between music and writing about it from the 19th century on. I mean, it's always had this really strong, dynamic relationship, you know, uh, that people would be making music. And then there are another set of people, sometimes musicians, sometimes not responding to that music in written form. And I, throughout the book, I trace this uh, relationship as being a very dynamic one and one that had all of these very strong political uh, connotations. Uh, you can take, uh, say, this idea that Jazz is America's classical music. We've all heard that, right? As a, sure. as a, you know, thing. Well, you know, it. When people start approaching jazz like that, then they start writing about it in a certain way. And if enough people keep writing about it in a certain way, then all of a sudden you have, you know, jazz being uh, uh, invited to the table of musical music curricula across the, the country and universities, you know, because there's a time where that would not have happened. You weren't going to have a history of jazz course in a music department in the United States. But through written discourse, through critics who have made arguments about the music and scholars, you know, coming later on to the to the bandwagon. And now music is, you know, readily accepted in the in the music, in the official music curriculum. The same thing happened with hip hop, you know, with the uh, uh, the kind of. It was um, can I call it the birth of hip hop? You know, music scholarship with Trisha Rose's book Black Noise back in nineteen ninety four. Sure, yeah, classic. Yeah, that came out, and then all of a sudden, you it just created a uh, a cottage industry of uh, writers who came of age listening to hip hop and then began to write about it as a profession professional practice. So that 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 is a, a very very dynamic. Uh, uh, relationship and always has been, particularly with with black music. You know, is I mean, there were people who wrote about uh, what you know the enslaved were singing and began to transcribe it and write it out, and saying, "How can these people be chattel when they're making music of this caliber?" That was the argument back in the nineteenth century, for among some writers. Okay, and on the same hand, you had writers who would say, "Oh my God, this is the most uh, 
barbaric thing I ever heard. These per- people deserve to be enslaved because of the musical practices that they're making. So even from the beginning of this, you know, relationship between black music and written criticism, it's always come with political implications and that continues unabated today. Great point because you, you, you know, the criticism, the cultural criticism then helps to legitimate, you know, the music. And then if you're saying, Oh, you have to admit people have a culture, right? Worthy enough of criticism. Mm-hmm. So this that's that's a you know great point. Uh, as we get through the to the end of our show, what about technology? Technology's impact on music. I, I remember when Auto Tune came out, and I was I, I I don't know. I think I changed my views a little bit, but. Uh, what do you think uh, in terms of technology's impact on music? Well, uh, let's start with, well, technology has always been a part of music, whether it is, mm-hmm. uh, sure. whether it is uh, coming up with a new kind of trumpet that uh, Francis Johnson, the, uh, the, the great early 19th century Philadelphia black musician who was the first to tour uh, Europe, you know, uh, so ins- the instruments themselves are always going undergoing, you know, technological uh, development. Uh, when uh, computers uh, began to uh, become part of music making, that changed the possibilities. When things went completely digital, uh, that changed the possibilities of not only making music, but how one could access it. So it's always been part of part of the mix, you know, whether it's building a <laughs> building uh, the uh, the instruments that the uh, griots play to whatever or tuning the instruments. It's all a technology. Now, with auto tune, it uh, <laughs> here's the thing about auto tune. This is how I think about it. You know, it went from being a a uh, a way to manipulate the pitches that uh, singers sang so that you could sharpen or flatten the, uh, the notes and the pitches that they sang to become, you know, aligned or in tune with the, the accompaniment below. So it went from becoming a practical tool that one could barely discern in a vocal line to becoming part and parcel of the social contract for some genres of pop music. Mm. So in other words, it's gone from being a tool to being a sonic symbol of pop music, a sonic symbol. So that like I compared in this, not in this particular book, but in the next book I'm writing, I'm, I'm, thinking about auto-tune as a form of, uh, it operated similar to how blackface worked because blackface was so ubiquitous in popular music that it wasn't popular unless people were blackened up. Mm -hmm. And today you can put on, you know, you know, different styles of new R&B or different styles of pop R&B and all of the lead vocals are uh, auto-tuned uh, and not trying to hide it. I mean, it becomes part of the sonic 
code, the sonic social contract that says to contemporary audiences, this is pop music. This is where it belongs. Mm. And that's the revolt of the millennials back to vinyl and trying to like to an extent anyway. But I, I think Generation Z wouldn't know the difference. I mean, maybe if you played something from 1960 versus, you know, the auto tune in terms of the way they listen. Yeah. And that's the thing about uh, musical practice. And this is something that I do discuss in the book is that it conditions us. And it's also the the beautiful thing about music and what makes it such a powerful uh, discourse in our lives is that it is able to absorb whatever we ascribe to it. You can say auto-tune is trash and make an argument about that. Or you can say auto-tune is an important sonic marker of extremely lucrative music making in the late in the early 21st century that uh you know you can you can make either argument and uh and it's okay hmm. i think now i just no going back probably <laughs> i mean with um but as we close up here or end our conversation, which has been great, I have had a really good time. Uh, what's next for you? I know you got a, a couple of more books you're about to to uh, produce here, and uh, your album. You said you got a, a track you're about to drop. Tell us about it. Yeah, I'm about to drop a track called "Who Hears," and it's a, about uh, chemist. The rapper uh, has read. Uh, parts of this book and he's read my previous books race music and uh created a narrative and he's spitting fire on this thing where he's talking about uh my uh my rise as a uh, as an african-american musicologist at a moment when that was not a uh, a big thing and uh, I, I love the work. So I'm constantly producing music. I'm working on also a uh, second volume of a, a, a set of music that I call a spiritual vibe. So spiritual vibe volume one is where I recontextualize these old hymnals and spirituals into contemporary dress, you know, and I might even put auto tune on some of it <laughs> just to, you know, <laughs> just as a rhetorical strategy, you know, to draw mm-hmm. the listeners attention to it. And uh, uh, there will be an accompanying video. So I do videos and films as well uh, to this uh, Who Hears Here. And I'm also working on a, a, a big project uh, on early Black 19th century musicians from Philadelphia called We Been Fly. And I just uh, talk about their lives in a live uh, presentation that includes uh live music and spoken word artistry and uh, multimedia uh, films. Sounds like some great work you have um, coming up. And uh, I definitely look forward to reading and listening. And I want to thank you so much for joining me today on This Week in Black History, Society and Culture. 
This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Absolutely.